Um, what a year it's been, you know. I, I, I think about this past year, and I think about the year before, and I think about year 2016, which everybody, it was so popular in 2016, if you remember, to kind of blame the year, like this was just as bad as it was ever going to get. And it was like that in 2012 when, you know, we're saying Mayan calendar, December whatever is going to be the last day of humanity, stuff like that. And there's always something, it feels like, going on in our world and in our lives to the point where if, if I was to think of a word to kind of describe just the way our lives go and my life personally goes, the word that comes to mind is the word turbulent. And I'm sure that if anybody here, you kind of thought about it just for a second, you could think of something that fits that description in your own life, whether it be all the, the rampant stuff that we hear in the news day after day, it seems like it never ends, or there's a shakeup with you or someone you know, with their job, with their home life, if there's a broken relationship, or if just life in general is changing, it's always in flux. And I think about it for myself, and I can never think of a time in my life when it felt like everything just sort of flattened out you know, where I could see the whole terrain, get a whole lay of the land, and everything happened just as I expected it. You know, that, that doesn't happen. That'd be nice, but it doesn't happen. Because something's going to rock the boat, whether we invite it to come along or not, whether we expect it to come along or not, whether it's enough for us to handle or not. And a little something about me, I'm a bit of a hyper-reactive person, and I use that term to describe myself because I would not call myself a problem solver. That kind of implies that something gets accomplished. But I'm not good at solving problems, but I'm good at kind of jumping in and trying to. Uh, My instinctive reaction whenever something goes wrong, whenever the boat gets rocked, is, okay, what do I do? What do I say? How do I react to this? How do I help things stabilize to kind of get a handle on what's going on? And, you know, I think that's, I'd like to think that I'm not alone in that. Maybe some people are better about it than I am. Um, but we see this process, thought process all over the place is whether we're trying to fix a situation or prevent it from ever happening again. It's this idea that we have to do something or say something. There's always somebody talking about, okay, who's to blame? What do we retaliate against? What, do, what provisions do we put in place so that this is never repeated or that we can cover and make up for whatever was lost? And I think a lot of times when that attitude is our approach to our lives, something else comes along with it, and it's this idea of what are we chasing? What are we seeking out? Because I think the underlying desire in all that reaction is something's disrupted my life as I know it. I need to do something or find something in order to find peace. And that's what we seek after. But the question is, when the boat gets rocked, Where do we look to for peace? How do we respond in a way of trying to find it? And so today we're going to look at God's message to a people who are in that same exact situation. Their lives had been rocked. They'd been tossed and turned and been through very terrible hardships. And now they were desperately trying to find something to bring some peace back into their life. So let's see what God has to say to them and to us today as we look in the book of Micah. So if you turn with me to the book of Micah, if you don't know where it is, uh, it's right where this arrow is pointing, uh, just underneath Jonah. We're kind of going in chronological order of these, uh, this series of books called the Minor Prophets. And just as you're scrolling through there, uh, just a little background information. Micah is the name of one of these prophets. And a prophet isn't somebody who necessarily tells the future, does fortune telling and stuff like that. A prophet was somebody who spoke on behalf of God, gave messages from God to God's people. And so it's usually messages of God's will, his instruction for them, or warning for something that may come if they continue on the path they're on. And Micah today is going to be giving a message to the people of Israel, the entire people of Israel. 
Um, a little background information and history on Israel during this time. Israel was actually split in two. God's people had been divided into two different regions. We have a map of them right here. Um, Israel was this kind of greenish region to the north, and Judah was this kind of fuchsia region down to the south. Um, They were at odds with one another. God's people were in contention with each other, and so they split up. They separated. And during this period, uh, Micah is going to be tasked with speaking to both Israel in the north and Judah in the south, specifically within their capital cities. Israel's capital was referred to as, is called Samaria up here, and then Judah's capital is uh, Jerusalem, which I can't find on this map. There it is. So there it is. So he's going to be speaking in their capital cities over the course of several years, possibly even a few decades. It actually, if you look elsewhere in the Bible, it says that really during this period of time, there were three different kings that went in and out of Judah during the time when Micah was speaking as a prophet. So during all those years, the world and the landscape of Israel shifted drastically. In fact, God's people had actually been through something called the exile. We actually have a map of that as well, that um, Israel had dwelt in a land that God had promised and provided for them, but for generations had warned them that if they continued on a certain path in their lives, it was all going to be taken away. They were going to be overcome and conquered by a foreign power. And after generations of disobedience and generations of prophets warning them, God's people were taken out of their land. And so Israel in the north was taken by the Assyrians, and Judah in the south was taken by the Babylonians. And so they were forced out of their homes, conquered by these foreign powers, and taken into a foreign land where people spoke foreign languages and worshipped foreign gods. So their lives were turned completely upside down. And during this period of time when Micah is speaking, they had been exiled for a time and were allowed to return back to their homelands. But even though they had returned back to their homelands, they still carried the scars of that exile. You know, their whole world had been turned upside down and their belief system was mocked. Their people were oppressed and they were left to wonder where they stood. And all their beliefs and all their behaviors after this point were drastically affected. And it's in this context that God is going to send Micah with a message to his people, his entire people, And it's a loaded one, so stick with me as we explore what God has to say to these people during this time. Micah chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, going to verse 6, reads like this. Micah says, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression. Jacob is in reference to the entire people of Israel. Because of the sins of the people of Israel. And I will highlight this. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? I would also highlight this. What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. So Micah kind of wastes no time in this message. He gets right to the point saying, hey, God is coming and he ain't treading lightly. He's melting mountains. He's splitting valleys. He's coming in earth shattering force. Be aware. Get, pay attention. He's saying God's coming down with great power and, and probably great anger. And he says it's because of the sins of the people of Israel. And then he kind of asks these questions. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Now, Samaria, like we said, is the capital of Israel. 
But the problem is, that's a capital city that wasn't really supposed to exist. It wasn't supposed to be its own separate region. You see, the people of God were divided when they weren't supposed to be. They split in two, and all the people who did not want to be among the people in the south moved themselves north. They separated themselves, built their own nation and their own society. The only problem with that is God's temple is not in Samaria. It's in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, which means that the people of Israel in the north have actually separated themselves from God's household. They're far from his dwelling place. And so the capital city of Samaria is symbolic of the people of God moving away from God, their rebellion and disobedience and straying from him. And then he turns and says, what is Judah's high place? What is a high place? In the Old Testament, a high place was a term used for a place of worship. The only problem is, it's typically a place of idol worship. It is where they would set up statues or icons to false gods and worship and pray to them. And so he's saying, Samaria, Israel in the north, is symbolic of a disobedience because they're moving away from me. But Jerusalem, the capital city, the place where my temple is built, is symbolic of disobedience as well. You're rebelling against me because you're worshiping other gods in my city. In my dwelling place, you're lifting up these false gods and idols. So God says because of this, he's going to lay it all bare. Just as he treads, like he says, on the high places of the earth, he's going to turn these symbols of disobedience into rubble. He's going to turn it flat for the division and the false worship of his people. And in this chapter, it's actually very interesting. We get to kind of look at how Micah responds to this news that he has to give. Being a prophet is not uh, an enviable job. And so we get to see really where Micah's head and heart is at. If you look with me in verse 8 of the same chapter. Verse 8 and 9, it says, Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. So Micah's making no mystery of, of his heartache. Saying he's cry, crying aloud, acting like an animal out of all of his grief. Some translations translate uh, owl to ostrich. I do not know what an ostrich sounds like. Um, I, so I just can't imagine that it does not sound pretty. And so Micah's drawing a lot of attention to himself. He says, I don't care. My heart is breaking. And it's breaking because these people are so backwards in the way that they're living. They're so turned around and sinful, and they're just going to make things worse for themselves. As if exile wasn't enough, they're inviting in more trouble for the ways that they're living. Because being a prophet means it doesn't just mean that you get a script to read. It's not just God's word, but you're getting God's perspective. You're seeing things the way that God sees, seeing that these things are not lining up with the way that we ought to be. And moreover, you get to see really how God's heart must be aching for these people to be turning away from him, living in such a destructive way. It's in the next chapter that Micah actually elaborates on this destructive way that they are living. Let's begin in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he starts laying down convictions of the people and their wrongdoing. He says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people. 
from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. Yikes. See, God is judging the people for the way that they are plotting against each other. They're jealously looking upon each other's property and what they own and trying to find ways to sneakily steal it away from them. They're taking away households. They're taking away land. They're taking away people's very inheritance. And a little context uh, to this, we have one more map today, is the uh, people of Israel were actually made up of 12 tribes laid out like so. And so when Israel entered into this promised land that God had given him, God allotted each tribe of Israel with a certain amount of land that they were to tend to and live in. That was considered their inheritance for each tribe. But what's going on now is that these 12 tribes are not happy with what they've been allotted. They're not content with what God has given them. And after returning from exile, they're trying to make more land grabs. They're trying to increase and well up more property for themselves at the expense of their neighbors. So this is God's judgment on the people and and the governing leadership of Israel. Next, we're going to look and see what he has to say about the religious leadership as well. Turn with me, still in chapter 2, but to verse 6. Verse 6 and 7 says this, Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Micah says, Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright. If you jump down to verse 11, he kind of takes almost like a personal jab at these prophets. He says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. That would be just the prophet for this people. He's saying, you, you guys are just waiting for somebody to let you know it's happy hour. And that's the kind of prophet that you're going to take on. You're not listening to my words. You're not listening to God's words. These priests and these prophets were drowning out messages of God's will or warning of God's judgment in exchange for something more popular, something more palatable. You know, saying, you know, God... God does, God's not going to overtake us. God's not going to get impatient. He's basically saying, hey, what you're doing, the way that you're snatching each other's land and stuff like that, A-OK. That is all right in God's book. In fact, uh, Micah even mentions in the next chapter that they're also proclaiming blessings to people in exchange for money, in exchange for bribes, so that if the people could front the money, they could somehow afford God's favor, his stamp of approval, and a promise of prosperity in a material kind of way. It's like, hey, God's not mad at you. He wants you to be wealthy. So the, whatever way it looks like for you to do that, go for it. It's fine. And in fact, these religious leaders, these prophets of God, are actually also the ones encouraging the idol worship that's going on. They're the ones that are setting up these idols and these statues of Baal, the weather god, and Asherah, the fertility god, saying, hey, go pray to these guys for good weather and good harvest. Go pray to this goddess so that you can have a healthy, happy family, so that you can be wealthy, because you're supposed to have stuff. Before we move any further, it's easy to kind of dismiss this as like Israel being Israel, but we step back and kind of look at the landscape of what they've been through and where they are right now as a people, none of this really kind of comes out of thin air. It starts to sound like learned behavior. Because we have a people who are fresh from exile, a people who are oppressed and forcibly taken from their homeland and subjugated by enemies. And now that they've returned home, what are they doing? They're clawing at each other's land. They're doing exactly what was done to them. They're grasping for something that they can cling on to and increase their own personal property because they've experienced the loss of it already. 
You also have a religious leadership who had been judged by their own God. And actually, if you look at the text, it says that they were actually mocked by the nations that, that took them away from their homes because your God's judging you. It's kind of like pointing and laughing at your friend because you know, their mom lectured them in front of you and you're in, you're in good standing. They're saying your God is letting all this bad stuff happen to you. Some God you must be worshiping. And so now that they're back, they don't want to be the ones to say like, hey, that horrible thing that happened might happen again. That's not a kind and friendly message in their minds. So they're trying to come up with something that's more appealing, something that can keep them in the people's good graces so that they're not mocked, so they're not made fun of for worshiping this God anymore. In fact, they even find a way to profit off of it. They try and profit off the people in exchange for the blessings that they can, say, they can proclaim. And they're turning people to worship these false idols and false gods who will give them the stuff they want if you appease them. So God's people had experienced loss. And now they're acting out out of a fear that they might lose it all over again. And so it's left them clamoring in this way. It's made them greedy. It's made them act in unjust ways because they're acting out of a fear that they're not going to be taken care of, that they might lose again. So how can I gather as much for myself as possible to prevent that? Very reactionary behavior. Even though they had their homeland back, their whole society was now built on a kind of godless attitude that I have to do what I can to make sure that I make it. And because of this, God was going to tear down what they had made. God was going to eliminate what they had gathered and everything they tried to accumulate for themselves. But now, in the middle of all this, this disobedience and all this desperation, Micah is about to make a hard left turn, not to proclaim more judgment, but instead to give them a promise, an alternative even. In chapter 2, verse 12, this is God speaking. It says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen and like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. So amidst all these people living out a false message, a lifestyle that says, hey, take what you can at anyone else's expense as much as possible. God is now saying, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Stop trying to steal your neighbor's food. Stop trying to ask your neighbor's parents to feed you. I'm your God. I'm going to take care of you. In spite of all the ways that they have suffered and all the ways that they have strayed from him, God promises that he's going to gather them and hold them together like a sheep cares for, or like a shepherd cares for sheep. Um, referring to God's people as sheep is very popular in the Bible. Uh, suffice it to say, I don't know how, much of us, how many of us know much about sheep, but sheep are basically helpless and basically stupid. If, if sheep... Uh, graze in one field too much and they exhaust all the grass, they don't know to go and move to another field. They don't know where to go. They're just going to starve there. And sheep don't have any defense mechanisms to protect themselves from predators. So they are defenseless and helpless and they don't know how to care for themselves. So God is saying, hey, you don't know how to do it, but I am doing it. I'm already doing it and I'm going to keep doing it. God is warning the people that they can't save themselves and all that they do and all that they collect isn't going to cut it. But they don't have to try to save themselves because he's going to look after them. He's going to be the one to hold them together. And in fact, the promise gets even better as we move on to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He starts laying out more details of this wonderful promise and assurance to his people. It says this, In the last days, 
The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, to the God of Jacob. And highlight this sentence. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And highlight this sentence as well. I love this. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And highlight this last part. No one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. What an incredible promise that is. God is promising, saying that a day of disarmament is coming, where he's going to establish himself, and he's going to settle disputes and judge rightly, so there's no longer going to be a want for weapons or a want for war. People with weapons are going to turn them into tools to take care of their own ground. They're not going to be fighting one another over territory anymore. He says that his word and his reign is going to be the protector of his people. And what he has spoken is going to guard them from their enemies so nobody can make them afraid. And best of all, God is promising that he will forever establish his dwelling place, not just amongst Israel, but amongst all people around many nations. So that anybody who wants to can come to him. They can approach him and know his works and follow in his great ways according to his great heart and what he has done. And that this promise is kind of reminiscent and echoed in a lot of other uh, passages of Scripture. There's a lot of Psalms that says, When my heart is overwhelmed, I'm going to look to the mountain that is higher than I am. And then Psalm 21 says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. See, they can look up in times of trouble to the mountain of God's temple. He says he's going to establish it as the highest high place. Those high places that they, the people have built, these places of false worship, this is going to be higher than all of them. God's going to be established higher than, greater than any other God, any other thing that we can look to. And he will promise to judge and be with us always, protecting us and giving us peace. He's going to forever be the shepherd of his people and always be present with them so that they can know his goodness. But how is God going to do this? How is he going to fulfill the promise? Well, turn ahead to chapter 5 with me, and we're going to see how God intends to provide this peace and provide his presence for the people. And this is actually how Micah is going to connect to the word of the gospel. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flocks in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And highlight this, this very beginning of verse 5. And he will be our peace. Just so we're clear here, Micah's talking about Jesus. Micah's referring to the oncoming fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise 
that the Son of God is going to come down, he's going to conquer sin, he's going to conquer death, and he's going to declare, take heart, because I've overcome the world. In this period in time, when Israel had been overcome multiple times, overwhelmed by their enemies, centuries before Jesus was ever on the scene, Micah says, hey, that long-awaited promise, here are the details. That out of Bethlehem, this little bitty town, one is coming who's going to shepherd the people in the strength of God himself. And when you look at Jesus' life and his ministry, it says that his heart ached for the people, much like Micah's heart ached for the people. Jesus had great compassion on them because he saw how backwards they were, how they had strayed from God, and how they were tossed and turned like sheep without a shepherd. And so Micah sees this and makes a great promise. Jesus sees this and fulfills that promise by being the good shepherd who brings everlasting peace through the salvation that he offers over sin and over death on the cross. And the great thing about this is no other God is capable of doing this. No other God had this system in place for their people. With all the idols and stuff that Israel was worshiping, it was always give this much money, sacrifice this much cattle or this much land, and then maybe you'll try and appease them. You'll be able to put these false gods in your debt so that they can deliver on some material goods for you. But with God, he's saying, look, you've been far from me all this time. You've been straying from these other things, but my promise still stands. My peace is still coming, and it's coming in such a total wave, so much greater than anything you could ever try and accumulate for yourself. And that promise extends to us today. Because we may not be identical to Israel in our circumstances. I don't know how many of us have undergone exile, but many of us undergo the same heart conditions as Israel. That something rocks the boat, our lives toss and turn, we feel the harshness of this world, and we begin to cave into fear and doubt. We begin to do what I do and start feeling like I have to frantically find something to band-aid this situation. And just like with Israel, the things that we do and the things that we chase after to try and find peace aren't going to cut it. But also just like with Israel, God makes a promise that says, hey, I'm better. I'm better than anything you can find. Because our peace is not found in our power. Our peace is not found in our possession. Peace has been given to us through the person of Jesus, through his coming and presence with us through the work that he has done and the free gift of life through him. And he has promised and delivered on that promise to hold us together when we struggle through every hardship and through every fear, and he's going to shepherd us with his power and his unfailing love. And the great thing about this is God's always been doing this. Long before you and I have been born, long before Micah delivered this message, in fact, later on in this book, God brings them to task on this, saying, hey, I've always been here for you. Turn with me to chapter 6. Beginning in verse 3, God starts taking the people to task on this very idea. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted, and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Highlight this, so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. 
With what shall I come, and this is Micah speaking now, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See, God is responding to people's fears and doubts by saying, wait a minute, you're chasing all these other things. When, when did I let you down? Did I let you down when I redeemed you from slavery? When I delivered you into this promised land? When I guided you and gave you leaders in the wilderness? When I protected you from your enemies? At what point was I a disappointment? At what point was I a burden to you all the times that I was rescuing you and providing for you? And God wants us to realize the same thing. Through everything that we might have endured, through every weapon that is formed against us, God has been good to fulfill the promise that none of these weapons will prevail. He has been an unfailing constant, proving his love and his strength by providing for our every need so that we can know his righteous acts. We can know how great his heart is and that he is stronger than any circumstance and any failing of our own. He's done all this to bring us closer to him and know that his hand has been covering us all along. And then Micah kind of tag teams with God to kind of respond to the people like me who says, okay, that's great. These promises are awesome, but what do I do? Where's my place in this picture? How do I live this out or, or, or add to this as if God needed me to add something to the equation, as if God was lacking in anything at all? He starts saying, am I going to give him, you know, a thousand rams or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? He's kind of using this crazy language of like, what, is this going to be enough for God? Because I don't have that. And not only that, what, what good is this going to do to a complete God who's already done so much for us? He's using this to say, God is not lacking in anything, and God isn't interested in our stuff. He hasn't asked us to accumulate stuff. And then in verse 6 through 8, or verse, uh, chap- chapter 6, verse 8, sorry, very famous verse, he says, this is what I am asking of you. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And highlight this whole next sentence. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Very, very famous verse. So God is saying, look, if you're asking, what do I do? The answer is this. The answer is these three things. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And, and we can kind of quote these very well-known verses uh, but not really understand and get into the depths of what they mean. So just so we understand, doing justly, circle that, means that we aren't looking out for how to try and gather more stuff for ourselves. We aren't looking at how we can take or take advantage of other people. We're not trying to live a wrongful life at other people's expense, but instead we're acting in the same way towards others that God has acted towards us. A life of giving, a life of advocating and defending and honoring one another with the way that we conduct ourselves, doing justly. Loving mercy means that this isn't just a uh, uh, task list. This isn't something that we just do half-heartedly. We do it out of the overflow of how God's heart has transformed our own, out of God's goodness and God's mercy for us because we love seeing God at work in our lives and in the lives of others. And lastly, probably the most important one, walking humbly. Walking humbly basically means we let God be God. We trust that he is able. We trust that he is enough. 
and the peace that he brings when we abide with him. And so we do. We walk alongside him, not just when there's times of disaster, not just when he's giving us good things, but every single day in his presence and in his perfect love. And scripture says that that perfect love is able to cast out all our fears. So whenever the world comes our way, whenever we struggle with doubt, whenever we feel condemned, we know that God is greater than our heart. And we can take these fears to him. We don't have to overcome our fears or our circumstances to get to God. He says, come to me with all the burdens on your back. I'm able to carry them and you. Give me your fears so I can prove to you how my love is greater. And so then our reaction then, when we do feel overwhelmed by the world, is not to react to the world or to react to the situations that arise of how do I fix this? How do I put the, the building back together? How do I prevent this from ever happening again? Our reaction is no longer to the hardness of life or our wrongdoings. Our reaction is now to God and his promises, to God and his love and the peace that he offers by walking with him and reflecting his heart in our everyday life. It's not an act of fixing, it's an act of surrender. That I'm not going to keep my hands on the plow until this is solved. I'm opening up my hands and saying, God, you're in control. You have done the work. I trust you with this. And I will be satisfied in what you have done. And Jesus actually affirms this message in the Gospels. His disciples at one point ask, hey, how do we do God's work? How do we know that we are accomplishing the work that God has given to us? And Jesus uh, responds to them saying, look, the work of God is to trust in the one that God has sent. So the work of the Lord isn't really to fulfill a task at all. It's to trust in me and the work that I have already completed and the promises that I have made. God's promised peace is always going to be with us, no matter how the world turns or how our hearts may turn away from him. He has made us whole as a way to prove his wholeness so that we don't have to look for anything else to try and complete the picture. He's done that. He is enough. I didn't tell you all this, but the name Micah actually means who is like God, who is like our God. And he, he ends the book celebrating and praising God because there is no one like him. There is no other God or other thing that the people can look after that are as gracious and rich as he is. It says, who is like our God because he has forgiven our sins. He's cast away all our wrongdoing into the sea. They're far from him. And that's this, and so it's this amazing thing that Micah's identity was kind of wrapped up not in his job or the stuff that he had, but in who his God was. And as God's children, we're called to the same. And we can have that same identity, that it's not wrapped up in my land or my property or my wealth or my ability to keep things in control and build my own peace. But it's in the peace that God brings to me because God has done justly. Through Jesus, he has taken the penalty of all my sin and he has overcome the world and all of its wrongdoing, conquered sin and death so that I am forgiven. God has done justly for us. And God has loved mercy. Micah even says you delight in showing mercy. You're not angry forever. You love to love your people. So God has done justly and he has loved mercy and he has made a way for us to walk with him. 
by canceling the condemnation of sin so that nothing stands between us and him so that we can abide in him and in the peace that he brings all the days of our, our life and nothing can stand in between because he has done the work. He's already completed the picture and fulfilled his promise to us. And nothing we could ever do and nothing we could ever desire could ever take the place or compare to that. And he's been our good shepherd through every sequence of events in our life, no matter how turbulent it has been. And he will continue to shepherd us on forever. And so the, all that remains for us, all the people like me, what do we do? Is that we turn away from these other things. We turn away from trying to find the solution or be the solution or synthesize our own peace. We turn away from that. We turn towards God with all our fears, all our failures, and we abide in him. We walk in him and the peace that he promises and brings to us. So let's pray.